Well, I'd like to welcome all of you to part three of Sticks and Stones, and a special welcome to those who might be listening or watching online to this message. Um, this is a series, as the video showed, that's all about um, our words and how we can best use them. And as we get into week three, I thought I'd start with a little bit of word trivia. All right, so I got two questions for you. The first one is this. According to a study that was done a few years ago, on average, how many words does a person say during one day? How many words does it? Does anyone want to take a guess? This is a, I don't know what I would have guessed if I didn't know the answer. And no phones. Put the phones down. No Googling this. All right. Are we safe to say in the thousands? Okay. 16,000 words a day on average is what the study showed as being um, the amount of words that people speak. Uh, here's part two of the trivia. When it comes to gender, <laughs> laughter already, who, um, who speaks more words per day on average, men or women? Right, that's exactly what I thought too, right? Now, it's weird though, according to this study, they found that there was no substantial difference between the amount of words on average that men and women speak over the whole group of people that they interviewed and polled, which goes to show, in part, that they did not poll my family or my house, because I know that there is a difference in, in my home. But here's the thing, and here's why I'm starting this way, is that I don't even know if we recognize how many times we speak during a day? I would not have guessed 16,000. I would have guessed maybe five or something like that, I think. And anything we do 16,000 times a day, or even 5,000, is something that's worth our attention. Anything we do 16,000 times a day is something that deserves our time to uncover what God might have to say about that activity, in this case, in speaking of words. I don't know if any of you recognize this name, Rock, right? <laughs> I'm guessing not. In fact, if someone raised their hand, I wouldn't believe you probably. Um, but Rock Wright is just a normal guy, but he happens to be a fanatical uh, fan of the University of Kentucky basketball team. And some of you might know this, or maybe you might remember this, but in 2015, Kentucky had one of the best college basketball teams in history. In fact, at the end of the regular season, they were 34-0 and and were primed to win the national championship. Rock was pretty confident about his Kentucky Wildcats, and so before the NCAA tournament started, he decided to get a tattoo. And here's what it said. 40-0, 2015 national champs. Now, you might be able to guess where this is going. The Kentucky Wildcats, one of the best teams in college basketball history, got upset in the semifinals. They lost. Their record was 38-1, and and they weren't national champions, okay? And Rock, forever has a marking on his body that is inaccurate and a lie. And yes, I think he's tried to modify it a little bit, as best as you can with tattoos, but it's something that's going to stick with him for quite a while. I don't know if you've ever Googled, and I hadn't before t this week, um, tattoo mistakes. 
there are a lot of good things out there that are going to make you chuckle unless you're that person. Uh, for instance, I found this one that someone had tattooed. Um, for those of you who aren't great with uh, spelling or speaking English, what this, reading English, what this actually says is not mom is my angel, but mom is my angle, which I'm uh, not exactly sure what that means. I'm pretty confident that's not what this person wanted. This one's even worse because it's ironic. This gentleman had on his arm, no regerts, no regerts. I'm sure he had some regerts for putting regerts on his arm, no doubt. Now, here's the thing, just a little bit of advice before we get to the more important point. If you're ever getting a tattoo, double check, triple check, Quadruple check. Call your pastor. I'd be happy to save you from some difficulty by running it by me. Check the spelling and make sure it's something that even though you liked it when you were 20, that you'd want it on your body when you're 80, okay? Because it's going to be there for a while. When you put a tattoo on your body, it sticks around. It sticks with you. So do words. The words that you speak, depending on what they are and depending the moment, they can stick with someone for their entire lives. And the reason why you agree with me on that is because you've received words that people have said years ago, decades ago, for better and sometimes for worse, you still remember them. Uh, this past week, I uh, emailed my growth group and asked them if they had any examples of this. And it was almost like I had set them up for this question because within moments, within minutes, I had about eight replies from people of things that just rolled off their tongue and rolled off their hearts of things that they remember. Some of them good, some of them difficult, some of them helpful, some of them hurtful. But the point is, and the point that you know that I don't need to harp on too much is that the things that people say, the words that people speak, have power and they leave an impression oftentimes. Now it's interesting that not only do we know this, Solomon, a king before Christ was born, and one of the wisest men who ever lived, he, he wrote a lot of different verses about words. Uh, here's one we haven't looked at yet. It's from Proverbs chapter 12. Solomon says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords. That words are like a weapon. And if they're not careful in speaking or being spoken, that it's like a sword piercing your body, piercing your heart. But on the flip side, the tongue of the wise can heal a wound, can bring healing, and can be helpful, and can be encouraging and inspiring. Solomon is validated. God has validated what you already know. And it leads to our first fill-in today, that words are powerful, so handle them with care. The things that come out of your mouth can be like swords, or they can be like healing salve to people. So let's think about what we speak and sometimes how we speak it. Now, I'm going to be really transparent with you this morning. 
this particular topic that we're going to look at today was in particular, particularly convicting for me this week. In fact, I didn't like these verses for about half the week. It was hard to hear because it was picking at something that I know that I'm not good at. And that is when I have opportunity to speak into someone's life, and especially for me convicting was thinking of my family unit, my family, that I don't know that I'm always as thoughtful with my words as I should be. And my guess is that as you hear these words from Paul, as we read them, for many of you, it's going to be convicting too. But let me give you some good news. As I stand here now, having wrestled with this text for hours this week and writing about it, I'm so glad that I did. Because I feel better today than I did on Wednesday. I feel equipped with a plan today that I didn't have before the week began. And that, my prayer, is going to be your gift as well today. So, we're going to turn to a letter that was written by a pastor in the first century named Paul. Um, he was a church planner, planted a whole bunch of churches around the Mediterranean Sea. He also happened to write parts of the New Testament by God's inspiration and the Holy Spirit's prompting. And this particular letter, he's writing to some Christians um, in what is modern-day Turkey, a town there named Ephesus. And before he speaks to them about the importance of thinking about what you say and, and the plan for, you know, what to say, he first, in this chapter, peels back the curtain a little bit and reveals what's going on in the hearts of the Ephesians that make it so difficult to speak good words. And in the process, he's also peeling back the curtain on my heart and on your heart because the very same thing that was going on for the Ephesians is going on inside of you. And this is why it makes it difficult. So this is where Paul starts. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin with verse 22, and he writes this. You, Ephesian Christians, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. And so he's calling something out in the Gentile Christians that is true for you as well if you're someone who is a Christ follower or believes in Jesus as your Savior, that these Ephesians had a former way of life, that there was a time in their life, there was a time in their existence where they thought differently, where they spoke differently, where they had a different purpose and plan for their lives. And if I could summarize in a very real and easy picture the heart of their former way of life, I think I would best summarize it with this picture. That for the Ephesians, what they struggled with is thinking through the lens of life that the entire world revolves around me. Now, none of us would want to admit that we subscribe to this. But just test your thoughts every day and what you think about and who you think about most and whose feelings you care about the most and whose happiness you care about the most. And we recognize that we struggle with this too. A way of life that puts me at the center and the people around me, I would never verbalize this, we would never verbalize this, right? Because we'd be embarrassed to. But that puts their, oftentimes, health and welfare, number two. 
Now, this was a very cultural thing. And in fact, we don't have time to go in it. It was connected to the prevailing um, God relationship that was prevalent in the Greek culture. It was all related. But you fast forward 2,000 years, and culture teaches us the same thing. There might be the right thing to do, but if that doesn't make you happy, you've got you to gotta do you first. You've got to be happy. It's so much the message that we hear. But it's deeper than that. It's not just culture. It's deeper than that. Think about a six-month-old or whatever age a child is when they begin to say their first words. One of the very first words that they say oftentimes, especially if there's a friend or cousin over or a sibling that just took the toy they were playing with, is mine. Now, did you teach them that? Maybe they learned it at work because the culture was influencing your six-month-old. Maybe it was the grand network of teammates on the basketball team for your six-month-old. Or maybe it's deeper than culture. Maybe it's something we struggle with from the time that we were born. You see, we all have had a former way of life. And Paul continues in these verses and he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. That's old self is referencing that, that sinful nature, that desire in us to think that the world revolves around me and what I want and my happiness and to think about me first, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. What Paul is saying is it never leads to happiness. It never leads to what you're looking for or what you think you want. It's a deceitful desire to put myself in the center and instead to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, I love the subject here because the person doing the work is not you. What this is saying is that there's someone else that is making you new. You can try all you want to change your heart and to follow Christ and to be given a new life and a new start. We cannot do it on our own. The Bible says we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but Paul is saying someone else made you new. And through the Holy Spirit and through Christ, we're able to have a new purpose and a new desire and a new purpose. So now everything's perfect, right? <laughs> Paul continues, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. The thing is that even after we've been made new, we still struggle the old self is still there, and we're daily battling, even in and with our new self, battling against the remnants of who we used to be, at least until we get to heaven and don't have to battle that anymore. But when God made you new, he gave us the ability to see things differently. No longer am I the center of the universe or the solar system, but instead I see that God is in the middle and that I have the opportunity to follow his will for us. 
And what God says is that we view life, we view purpose, we view people differently. In fact, Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament with two commands, love God, and it wasn't love myself. What was it? Love other people. Love God, and if you do, you can show it. You can see it as you love more than even yourself the people around you. Our second fill-in. It's kind of corny because it rhymes, but you might remember it this way. When God made you new, he also gave you a different view. And we don't do it perfectly, and we still mess up, and we still battle the old self. But he's given us a new way to view life and a new way to view purpose. When God made you new, he also gave you a different view. And then the rest of Ephesians 4 lists some ways in which we can live out this new self. And one of those ways is connected to how you speak. Verse 29 says this, don't let, it's almost as if because it is that we have the ability to control what comes out of this thing called the mouth. That words flow out, our mouth is a gate, and guess who the gatekeeper is? You and me. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, the, the Greek word for unwholesome here is, has the root uh, meaning of rotten or spoiled. I mean, the Greek language back then, they would use this very word when their food spoiled and smelled. It's the exact same word. What Paul is saying is don't let any rotten, spoiled words come out of your mouth. And this is a general way of speaking about a whole bunch of different things that come out of our mouths. Um, I have a, a list here, not of specific words, let, let's be real, but um, categories, curse words. Um, sometimes we might call them bad words, obscenities, uh, vulgarities. They're really focusing in on uh, words sexually or dirty jokes, things like that, that don't need to be said. Um, gossip. Uh, this is one that we do so much and we don't even think about it. When, and even if it's true, things are said about people and they're not there, and it'd be rather that we just not say it at all. Slander's connected, but, but this is an intentional sort of tearing down of a person's uh, reputation, the things that we say about them. And then and finally, a uh, category, harsh and attacking words. Um, that there are ways to say things to people that are helpful and ways that are not. And unwholesome talk, unwholesome words, be ones that we speak that are not helpful. And that's what Paul then begins to hone in on. Let's go back to verse 29. He says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Now, remember I told you before that I struggled with this text and I am not perfect just like you're not perfect and so I'll give you my honest reaction to these verses or this verse when I read it. I'm like in my heart thinking, that's not realistic. Does Paul understand my life? Does he understand the circumstances that I'm in? It sounds so kind, so soft, so, so weak almost. You know, as a parent, it's like, Johnny, 
I mean, I know that you've been sassy to mom all day, and you're not coming up when mom calls you, but you're a lovely son, and I want you to know that I love you. I mean, is that what Paul is talking about? (laughs) Because it doesn't work like that in my house, let me just tell you that, and probably not yours either. Do you notice that Paul doesn't at all here say that you're only supposed to speak words that are nice and in a kind, soft way. In fact, the adjective that is used is much more direct and much more helpful because that is what the adjective is. He says words that are helpful. It's not a weak word. It's not a soft word. It doesn't mean that we have to avoid difficult conversations. It means that when we speak to people in a way that we are needing to direct, that we're going to, our goal is to be helpful. Now, for some of you in this room, in order to be helpful, that means that when you have conversations, it usually, again, happens with people in your home or close to you on your team at work or whatever it might be, that for some of you, you need to dial it back a little bit. Because you're so quick to speak and slow to listen. And last week we learned that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And because we're not listening, because we're so ready just to let them have it, the people we're speaking to can't hear the love that is behind the words or hopefully that are there. So for some of us, to be helpful means we need to step it back a little bit. But for others of us in this room, to be helpful with our words means that we need to step it up. Because there might be people in your life that are in a path or on a path to hurting themselves spiritually or physically, and we've been too fearful to hurt people's feelings that even when done in a mindful, prayerful way, we have not been bold enough to have that difficult word. And by not speaking, by not having that difficult conversation, sometimes we're not being helpful. And Paul says, we need to be helpful with our words. Let's go, verse 29 now also tells us to what end or to what goal. Helpful for building others up. Now, this was the revelation moment for me this week that the Holy Spirit used to give me a different way to think and a game plan for how to use my words if I would just stop to think. And the word used here for building others up is literally a construction term. It references a construction site or a building project. And what Paul is saying is that your words, fill in number three, have tremendous purpose. The purpose is to build people up, to help them grow spiritually, relationally, to be an encourager of them so that they're better having heard from you. In fact, this point was so ingrained on my heart this week that I tried hard to think of a way to illustrate it. Unfortunately, it was a construction word, and I'm really, really bad at fixing or building things, but I have been known to swing a hammer every once in a while. And so bear with me as I illustrate what I think is a really important and I would 
say, eye-opening way to think about your words. Um, so again, what Paul is saying is that words are powerful. In fact, uh, like a hammer is powerful, so are your words. And when you think about conversations, you want to think about it as an opportunity to build, an opportunity kind of like a construction site or a building project. So if you've ever swung a hammer, okay, um, when you're building something, almost always there needs to be something nailed or screwed in. Um, in order to build something, in order to connect something, you have to have focus on that nail. And if not, you're probably going to hit your hand. All right, I hope I don't screw up because I do not swing hammers very often. But you have to focus, you have to look, you have to be careful, you have to be strategic. That's what Paul is saying when it comes to your words. They're powerful. What's your goal? You want to build something. You have to be focused. You have to be strategic. You have to think. What often happens when you have to have a difficult conversation with someone? We just start hammering. We just let our words out. We don't think, we don't focus, we don't consider what it is we're trying to do. We just start talking. And we damage things. Maybe not irreparably, very unlikely irreparably sometimes, but it's not helpful. And certainly not what a good goal would be. And whether it's in frustration, whether it's because we just didn't think about it, or whether it's because we have anger in that moment and we slam those words out hard, instead of building up, we tear down. Instead of building up, we can so often damage the people we love the most with our words. So here's a question. What would happen if we viewed every conversation as an opportunity to build? And it takes time, and it's not one conversation, and it's exhausting sometimes. And we're not going to do it perfectly, but what if we did it more? What if we considered the people around us as creations made new by God and how we can help to build them up and encourage them and help them grow with our words? Here's some practical things to think about. It goes back to listening first and speaking next. Um, one author put it this way, seek first to understand, then to be understood. So often we want to be understood before we've had a chance to understand. Or, or how about this? Um, how about the way we speak or the words that we use? So often we use attacking words like, you never or you always or you are, fill in the blank, and we put a label on someone that we love. And I know this isn't easy, and in, the, in the, the heat of the moment, it just comes out, but we need to be ready for it. We need to think. We need to be strategic. Let me give you an example when it comes to how you say something. Let's say that you have a spouse or a child or a coworker that's lazy, okay? And that's truth, okay? <laughs> There's a couple ways you can handle it. You could say, you're lazy? And things don't get done around here because you have no energy. Or 
you could say, I see an amazing amount of potential in you. And things around the house or things at work would go a whole lot better and more smoothly. And in fact, what we do would be better if you used your gifts. Right now, I don't see you using your gifts. Now, I've just reduced hours of conversation into a couple sentences. I realize that. And yet, I still think you get the point. There are ways to say things that are helpful and build people up. And there are ways that are not. Let's go back to verse 29. Don't let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, because it's a construction project, it's a building project, according to their needs, that it may be benefit those who listen. Now, I'm doing a 180-degree change here for a moment, because so far what we've been talking about exclusively are the people who are speaking. Okay, now we want to take, talk for just a moment about those who are listening. Because communication takes two parts. There's the speaking and there's the listening. Communication is 50-50. I was talking to a friend this week in prep for this message, and he said that he's observed something about our culture, that there is a growing, and he called it a growing spirit of offense. And what he meant by that is, if people around me don't support me in whatever it is I think or whatever it is I do or whatever it is I feel, they're wrong, they're haters, they don't love me, they don't care. He's right. I can't speak to those who are not Christians, but for those who have God at the center of their universe, it's not what you want for you that's best for you. Instead, it's what God wants for you that's best for you. And do you know what one of the worst places to be in all the world is? In a position where you are so unable to take loving critique or correction and people feel so nervous around you to say anything that isn't just patting you on the back, that there's no one around you to love you enough to point out the things that we all need to hear. And one of the best places to be is when you have people around you that have been enabled to love you in ways that they can have the difficult word with you and you're not gonna blow up and that you're gonna see and hear the love behind it even if it's not perfectly said in the exact way that you needed to hear it, you can still see their love because they've shown it over the years and how important it is for us to listen. Communication is 50-50. Let's go back to verse 30. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That in some way, in a real way, the Holy Spirit himself is saddened when we let unwholesome talk come out of our lives. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And all of a sudden, it seems like Paul's all of a sudden changed the subject, changed the topic. He was talking about words now, except for slander. None of this is about words. It's about feelings. Paul hasn't changed anything. He's pointing out that so often the things that come out of our mouths is just a reflection of what's going on in here. And so it's important for us to think about what's going on in here as we work 
towards allowing what comes out of our mouth to be more helpful? Was there someone in your past that had such high standards for you that you never felt you could live up to that has led you to now do the same thing with your children? And and what are you going to do about that? And how are you going to change that cycle? Is there someone who blew up every time there's a difficult word that was said or whenever they were frustrated and now you find yourself doing the same thing and how do I break that cycle and forgive them and move forward? The examples can go on and on, but it starts in here. What is it in here that I need to repent of? And what attitude do I need to change that will help my words be more helpful and to build people up? Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, the interesting thing is that up until this point, except for the first part of chapter 4, but the words about words would be helpful advice whether you're a Christian or not. To be careful about what you speak, to think about it through the lens of building people up and being helpful, is just good advice. But now Paul gets to the key. The reason why we'd even care about this, the heartbeat of what's behind a person who speaks to build people up and he starts to bring Jesus into it. I referenced this before, but I'll say it again. Most of the time, people who are the most critical tend to have high standards for people that they feel like they're not living up to. They've put their standards on people, and when people don't meet those, they get upset, they get mad. Let me tell you, no one's going to live up to your standards. People, even those that love you the most, even the person sitting next to you right now, if they haven't already, and they probably have, they will disappoint you. They will not live up to the standards that you have. The interesting thing is, you haven't lived up to theirs either. And when it comes to God's standards that are perfection, we're not even close. Now, what did God do about that? We don't live up to his perfect standards. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? Did he destroy it all, take the hammer to it, to hell with you literally? Or, in patience and love, he spoke a loving, life-inspiring word and said, there's going to be a Savior that will come, that will redeem you and give you salvation When people came to Jesus and they were just exhausted and sometimes from their own bad decisions, what did he tell them? You dug your grave, now you got to live in it or whatever the phrase is. That wasn't the right phrase, but you know. No, you know what he says to them? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. It's amazing how Jesus used words. On the cross, he's in So much suffering. He's there because of me and my inability to speak the way that I should and the sins of the world. And he stays there and says, it is finished. 
and to the thief next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. You're forgiven. Christ paid for your hurtful words. You haven't been perfect with this, but because of Christ, God sees perfection in you. And now, he says, forgive others just like God forgave you. Speak to others the way God speaks to you because of Christ. Love others around you as a little reflection because it won't be the same as how God's loved you. Build others up around you because you and I are God's greatest building project and he gave me new life. You would never go to a friend's house and take a chainsaw to the deck that they built. Our fill in number four, let's not tear down that which Christ built up. Sitting next to you are beautiful creations of God whom he redeemed, who he speaked truth and grace over. Who am I to tear down that which Christ built up? That doesn't mean we're nice all the time. It means we're loving and helpful all the time. So here's the question as we close, because I've taken more than enough time. Who do I need to start building? What relationship, what area, what place do I need to start looking at my words more as an opportunity to be helpful and to build others up? And by God's grace and by his strength, may we do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, um, I have to confess that I have not been good with my words, that I've been quick to speak and slow to listen, that I haven't been strategic, and sometimes I've used the, my words like a hammer that have damaged and hurt instead of built up. Dear Lord, because of what Christ has done for us, may we in grace and forgiveness Share that same grace and forgiveness and patience with the people around us. And may this be a new day, not of perfection, but a new day of improvement where we put off our old self and we put on the new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.